Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the freezing season where here in Minnesota, it's cold as fuck. But we're here to warm you up with some wine and some bad bitches, but of the good kind. Some good bad bitches. bitches. Um, (laughs) That's Emily. And I'm Kelly. And this is Whining About Herstory, where we're going to tell you some stories about women that you probably haven't heard of and get a little tipsy while doing it. That was a beautiful intro. Thanks. I also, fucked it up, but I was just like, I'm going to keep going. Also, freezing season is totally appropriate. I uh, I keep missing these rare and uh, becoming even rarer warm days to put up my Christmas lights. And I think we have one that's coming up. And I, I basically like just have to commit because I've, I've just been so busy all the other warm days. And I'm like, I'll do it later. And then it's bitterly cold like the wind is literally nestling in my bones I just have to fix my Christmas <laughs> I was gonna say you have them up it's but like it looks like Monday or Wednesday is your best shot you. I thought it was like Tuesday was gonna be in the 40s Monday is high of 49 low of 30 okay T- Tuesday is 42 and 34 Wednesday is 50 and 38 Ooh. really all of this week except for tomorrow this is basically my last chance mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what you're telling me yeah that's exactly what I'm telling otherwise you. no lights I've actually I used to be kind of a a Christmas or holiday decoration snob where I'm like why are you putting stuff up before Thanksgiving but then with the pandemic people put things up incredibly early and I think it was because like well one none of us have anywhere to go and two why the hell not like fuck everything time means nothing let's enjoy the lights while we can and that vibe has kind of rolled into this season like right after Halloween I saw people's Christmas lights up and I'm like like, good for you the lights and stuff don't bother me for me it's I will not put my Christmas tree up before Thanksgiving because I'm like, I, you need to celebrate each holiday and you put your Christmas tree up. You're skipping a holiday. Honestly, I'm, I'm too busy leading up to Thanksgiving to even worry about putting up my fucking tree. And I, we haven't had it up for the past couple of years because we were doing the remodeling and everything kind of shifted to the downstairs and we didn't have a lot of space, but I think this year we're going to try to do it. Hmm. Which will be which will be nice. We'll see what the what the cat does because I adopted a cat. Yay! I now I now I'm the proud mommy of four fur babies, and I'm done. No more animals. I'm done. <laughs> but yeah, it's I th- too many. Yeah, well, it's not too many. It's the perfect amount. Like I think this is how people feel when they reach the right number of kids, and they're like, "Yeah, we don't need any more." See, I'm done. That's how Justin is with our three dogs, and I'm like, I could do one more. <laughs> Well, and and Max, as far as our, being our third dog, he was kind of a an accident, <laughs> you could say. We weren't intending to get him, but circumstances presented themselves. And right. I love him. I'm so glad he's a part of our family. But yeah, we we just ended up with one more animal than we ever planned on having. That's fine. You know, it happens. Life happens. Yeah, life finds a way. Life finds a way. He is our Jurassic Park baby. Yeah, he is. <laughs> All right, Emily, what are we drinking today? All right, well, today we are drinking Frisk's Prickly Riesling. And I literally picked it because I was like, Frisk, that's funny. (laughs) Of course. I love the name. We're done. (laughs) And uh, I actually had to look up the description on their website because it wasn't on the bottle, which is frustrating. But anyway. Apparently, this is another Australian wine. Oh, that's right, because it's uh, by the same... Import group group that uh, did Kelly's Phoenix wine last week. So apparently it it's just an Australian thing, maybe, to not have descriptions on the bottle. Yeah. Mama Meg, get on your winemaker. No, here's the thing. It's because you can't be too distracted looking and reading a wine bottle because that's when the spiders and the sharks and the crocs will get you. That's true. They're like, you we gotta can't be, distract you. You got to be on your toes. You can be drunk. But you can't be distracted. Yeah. <laughs> so the description for this wine is, This zippy Riesling is floral and weighted with notes of lime sorbet, rose petals, and a hint of fennel. Is fennel a seed? Mm-hmm. What does fennel taste like? I have no idea. Is it like funnel? Funnel cake? No. It's, no? It, it's more savory. It's okay. more like, it's in like, more along the lines of like sage. Okay. With its racy verb Ooh, going in racy. my, that's going in my uh, Tumblr not Tumblr, Tinder profile. 
Good I mean, God. You can put it on your Tumblr profile if you <laughs> All really my profiles. With its racy verbs, subtle complexity, and just a tinge of sweetness. Wait, are you saying verve? Yeah. Or verb? Verve. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't 100% With sure. With its, well, frisk is a verb, means to frisk. Yeah. <laughs> This Thank is a you. racy I verb. I didn't know that. <laughs> I mean, frisk is a bit of a racy verb, you know. Uh, so complexity and just a tinge of sweetness. It's a perfect companion for both sweet and spicy dishes or simply on its own. Good, because that's how we're drinking it. Refreshingly complex on the palate. It will make you wonder how you emptied your glass so quickly and have you reaching for another. It almost sounds like a threat and I'm into it. It's like, how did I finish this glass so quickly? Oh, God, I'm reaching for another. I have no control. What's happening? <laughs> but yeah, funny. we haven't. Okay, it's not that we haven't had a Riesling in a while. Have It feels like a while since no, we've had a Riesling. No, it's been a while. Yeah, so that's why I picked this. I also like the name. So cheers to the holiday season and cheers to us surviving the freezing season. The freezing season. God. That's just starting. Uh, every year, it's... Uh, I hate the cold. I hate it, and I live in the wrong place for it. Cheers! Cheers. Ooh. I like this. I thought it was going to be carbonated. I don't think it is. It's not. I thought it was going to be more dry. I thought it was going to be carbonated because... The like it's got bubbles around bubbles. the wrapper, and I was yeah. like, "I suppose twists off." I don't think I ever carbonated. Oh, it can be. Like Stella Stella Rosa has carbonated twist offs. Um, it's no, not what I was. It's very apple forward. Like I, I feel yeah. like that's what I'm tasting is apple, like a green apple mm-hmm. kind of thing. No, it's I get good. that. It's sweeter than I thought it would be. So on I the mean, back Riesling's, of the bottle, oh, that's true. On the back of the bottle, it has like a uh, sweet to dry meter, and it's considered off dry, which is just above dry. I would probably so, would have put it as a, as like the medium. Yeah, it's really good though. Like I'm, 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 I'm digging it. I'm pleasantly surprised because I thought it was going to be kind of like some of those really mellow moscatos that we mm-hmm. have, where it's like oh, I was kind of hoping for something a little like sweeter and fruitier. But I think it's good because it's like I don't think I'd want like a really hardcore moscato right now because like it's just not the right season. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I get that. And honestly, you'll, you'll I, see in our repertoire we're coming into the we're going to be drinking like all reds season, and I know we were in a all white season for a while. Yeah, because my sister in law Caitlin was like. <laughs> Drink a red so I can drink with you. Yeah. I'm like, but it's summer. <laughs> yep. And uh, honestly, I almost didn't pick this one because I'm like, but it's winter. But we just drank a Cab Sov. <laughs> the other Cab wine that I pulled out was also a Cab Sov. And I'm like, okay, I at least have to mix up the, like, at least the varietal, kind of if that not. Syrah that's like staring me in the face. No, because I wanted one that was a twist off because I wanted to keep. That's true. Yeah, yeah so you can probably take this, this one. This wine home with you, presented I itself. Oh, I guess Drew's out of wine. Oh, he has caught up. Good God! For for anyone who doesn't know, Drew is our uh, friend who is a fan of alcohol, and all of the bottles that we can't finish are he gifted finishes, to him. And when so they weren't doing D and D at our house for a while, which is probably what helped. Is so because he, he's over on Mondays for game night, and he'll usually have like a glass of wine, like a big glass. Mm-hmm. But he was, he had like six or seven bottles. He was like six or seven bottles behind. And some of them were like the really old ones that we forgot in the studio and then brought upstairs that I probably shouldn't have let him drink. But <laughs> that boy has an iron stomach. I was going to say. We'll have, to like, have him on sometime. He has no fear. Um, but yeah, like, but now he's been coming over on Sundays for D&D too, just the last like few months, but it's every other Sunday. But yeah, like last Sunday he was like, he was like, Kelly, I'm caught up. And I'm like, shit. Because we hadn't recorded. And I'm like, well, you're going to have to wait. Yep. <laughs> So that's okay. Do I get to kick this party off? You do. No, mm. no, I do. You do? Yeah, because you went I first with Dolores one. Huerta. Yeah, Huerta. I'm I'm terrible. You're a terrible, names. terrible person. I am. <laughs> I am a terrible I'm so person. Bad at names There's too. a special circle in hell of uh, people who mispronunciate. I almost said mispronunciate. <laughs> that's why I'm going to that circle of yep. hell right there. But I'm going to hang out there with all the people who can't pronounce anything. Yeah, I'm I'm right there with you. So uh, today I'm going to be kicking us off by whining about Mary Golda Ross, who was a real golden girl. 
Okay. And I love this. Have you, have you heard of her? No. Okay. So this is a STEM lady. So I'm going to apologize right now. Uh, I kind of, I try to explain what she did and its importance, but I definitely do not get into nitty gritty detail because it gives me a headache. So I'm doing my best, but she's super cool. And if you're into engineering and space travel and STEM, definitely look more into her. So Mary Golda Ross was born on August 8th, 1908 in Park Hill, Oklahoma. She was the second child of William Wallace and Mary Henrietta Moore Ross. Not that William Wallace. (laughs) I was like, that name. (laughs) Not that William Wallace. Are you sure? Not Braveheart. (laughs) Uh, Her great-grandfather was a Cherokee chief named John Ross, who had helped lead his people west from their ancestral lands along the Mississippi River to Oklahoma as part of the U.S. government's Indian removal efforts. So it wasn't so much like they were like moving of their own volition, but being forced out, and he helped guide them along this horrible, horrible trip. Yeah. Yeah. So growing up, Mary was sent to live with her grandparents in, uh, remember how I said I'm bad at pronouncing-ating? Pronouncing. Pronouncing things. Uh, Pronounciated, Emily. Tahlequah, I think is how you say it. T-A-H-L-E-Q-U-A-H. Tahlequah. We have someone that will help us with German, but we don't have anyone to help we, us we, with we this. We need to. We need a deeper bench of international and cultural correspondence to help us with pronunciations. Right. But this is the capital of the Cherokee Nation. Oh. There, she attended school until she was 16 years old when she enrolled in Northeastern State Teachers College, where she earned her bachelor's in math in 1928 at only 20 years old. And I'm like... You studied a math person? Good grief. Yeah, I did. <sighs> I, I'm also very surprised. You're anti-math. It's funny. <laughs> it's not that I'm anti-math. I revere and pedestalize people who can do math because it is so beyond me. This school was the fir- was the first higher education institution for women west of the Mississippi, and her great oh, grandfather, cool. Chief John Ross, who I mentioned earlier, had actually placed its cornerstone. Because that's even cooler. Yeah. Uh, apparently, like in Cherokee culture, education is incredibly important. Mary was exceedingly intelligent and talented. She thrived in school and fell in love with math and astronomy. Aww. She said, quote, I was brought up in the Cherokee tradition of equal education for boys and girls. It did not bother me to be the only girl in the math class. And I'm like, that's awesome. Her, yeah. The Cherokee have their shit together. Maybe we can take a lesson from them in that. And... Provide equal educational opportunities regardless of gender and gender expression. Anyway, after completing her bachelor, she earned her master's from Colorado State Teachers College in 1938, and she apparently took, quote, every astronomy class they had. And I actually, we were in the same astronomy class in college. I was shocked. Her teacher was fantastic. She was amazing. Also, I love that the very first day she's like, just in case anyone's confused, this is not astrology. We're not going to be talking about your signs. We're not going to be talking about Mercury in retrograde. And what was really cool is even though astronomy had a lot to do with math and like a lot of those complex ideas, I was actually able to understand what she was saying. She was such a wonderful teacher. She really was. And she made sure people, she made sure you understood. Yeah. And I never felt stupid for asking a question or like she was the best. Um, so if you've been paying attention to the years, you will know that this is during the Great Depression, a time of severe Yay. economic distress, to put it lightly. While going to school during the Great Depression, Mary was also teaching math and science in a rural in rural Oklahoma schools. So like doing the Lord's work. In 1937, at 28 years old, Mary joined the Bureau of Indian Affairs in Washington, D.C., working as a statistical clerk. But she was soon reassigned to be an advisor at the Santa Fe Indian School in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So this boarding school, like other Indian schools of the time, was meant to assimilate indigenous children into European culture while also keeping them subservient to Europeans. Seriously, check out the episode where I cover Zikala Shah. I go into a lot more detail about Indian schools and how much of a goddamn horror show they were. Yeah. And I was kind of surprised, though, that they hired an indigenous woman to work at one of these schools. And I wish I could find more about her role and her experiences in them, but I couldn't. 
Okay. I'm hoping she was not one of the people that's like ripping children out from under beds and chopping their hair off. But I'm also like not giving Indian schools any credit. So it was while working at the Indian school that she earned her master's degree. So she was switching off from working in Santa Fe and spending summers attending classes. So she was like, her summer vacation was going to school and then her job was teaching. Again, if you've been paying attention to the dates, you probably know what's coming next. In 1941, the United States entered World War II. Encouraged by her father, Mary moved to California looking for work. And this was during a time when a lot of women were entering the workforce to fill the places of men who were serving overseas. And there was this really wonderful opportunity for women to enter the workforce in fields that were not normally available to them. But instead of working in a munitions or assembly factory like Rosie the Riveter, she was hired by Lockheed as a mathematician, or as we like to call them on this podcast, a witch. She was a professional witch. That's what Emily likes to call her. <laughs> yes. Them. If you're good at math, you are a witch, and I respect the hell out of you. For those who don't know, like me before doing this research, Lockheed is an aerospace manufacturer with a long history of contracting with both the U.S. and British militaries. And in this was kind of a fun history crossover. They created the Vega 5B aircraft, which Amelia Earhart piloted in her solo nonstop transatlantic flight in which she became the first woman to do so. Oh, that's cool. I didn't so know they, that. they designed and manufactured that plane and then she flew it and like achieved official badass status. So during World War II, Lockheed was contracted by the US government to design and manufacture aircraft, including the P 38 Lightning Fighter aircraft. This was the only American fighter aircraft that was in production throughout the US's entire involvement in the war, from Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, to Japan's surrender on August 15, 1945. So this is the wow. only fighter aircraft that they were consistently using. Producing, yeah. Yep. It was this aircraft that Mary was hired to work on. Specifically, she worked on the effects of pressure on the P-38. So this thing was like a pretty remarkable aircraft for the time. The P-38 Lightning earned its name by being the first military aircraft to fly faster than 400 miles per hour or 640 kilometers per hour for international listeners for 90% of the world. I'm, I'm thinking of you. I see you. <laughs> To allow the aircraft to achieve this, the design team, which Mary was working with, had to design it to overcome a variety of issues related to high-speed flight and aeroelasticity. You know that aeroelasticity. Yeah. It's such a bitch. <laughs> Mary was a key member of this team. So she's working to get this aircraft to basically be able to stay in the air while traveling at previously unachievable speeds. That's insane. Mary recalled, quote, Often at night, there were four of us working until 11 p.m. I was the pencil pusher, doing a lot of research. My state-of-the-art tools were a slide rule and a Fridden computer. It's a, it's a computer where the screen is the smallest part. It's not like one of those giant ones where it takes up a room, but it's like this tiny screen and then all this hardware and a keyboard. That's interesting. Yeah, it's, it's old. Like, it's old. It's old. Yeah. Like us. Not that old, or we're not that old. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I have to give us a little credit. We're not that old. But while she was designing aircraft to fly through Earth's atmosphere, she had loftier goals, interstellar goals, goals that were out of this world. Do, 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 do. But she kept them to herself, saying, quote, if I had mentioned it in 1942, my credibility would have been questioned. That's just sad. That seems like a polite way of saying everyone would have thought I was nuts and never trusted me with anything ever. <laughs> Mary had clearly proven herself at Lockheed, so much so that after the war, the company sent her to UCLA to earn a professional certification in engineering. She studied math for modern engineering, aeronautics, missile and celestial mechanics, and other things I don't understand, but all sound very impressive. <laughs> and this was... Not a common practice for companies at the no. time. While many women did enter the workforce during World War II, once the war was over and the men they replaced returned home, many women were let go. And actually, 
there was a propaganda push during the war to encourage women to go to work. But then after the war, the government was saying it's your patriotic duty to stay home and raise your family now. Like it's patriotic for you to quit your job and raise your family so not only were women being encouraged by the government to leave, a lot of these jobs were like firing them. And then some of the jobs just weren't as in high demand anymore. Like a lot of the manufacturing and things for the war effort, those jobs just weren't needed yeah. as much. So there, there were a lot of things that kind of kicked women out of the workforce. But not only did Lockheed keep Mary, but they invested in her further by sending her to get more schooling in this they're like we need to hang on to this chick because she is the shit that's awesome though she earned the nickname gold ross like she is the golden girl she is the golden child in 1952 mary got her chance to embrace her out of this world goals she was assigned to lockheed's advanced development program at their secret skunk works where she worked on skunk Works. yeah so this whole facility was like on lockdown, no one knew it existed. We know now, I just but at the time, secret skunk. Works. Yeah. So this is where she worked on design concepts for interplanetary space travel. She performed studies on orbiting satellites and did studies on crewed and uncrewed flights. Wow. Other than uh, the secretary, mm-hmm. Mary was the only, the only woman, woman on the team, and she was the only indigenous person because remember she's of the Cherokee Nation. Yeah, that's awesome, though. She also worked on the a Gina rocket project and designed for flyby missions to Venus and Mars. Additionally, she was one of the authors of the NASA planetary flight handbook, volume three. She literally wrote the book on space travel. Like, are you kidding me? She said, we were taking the theoretical and making it real. Cause this is the 1950s. We wouldn't go to the moon until 1969. Mm -hmm. Like space travel was, was a really big deal at this point, but we hadn't even, it it wasn't even close to being what we think of it as today. And it was all theoretical. Like this was stuff no one had done and no one like knew if they could do it. You know, like they were, they were literally writing the book on this stuff. Yeah, that's amazing though. Mary was respected amongst her colleagues. Norbert Hill, who worked with Mary said, quote, she was just one of the guys. She was as smart as the rest of them and she held her own. Which honestly, when we hear about women working in male-dominated environments, they have to be, they, they can't be just as good. They almost have to be better they, because they, have, like they to have to earn be yeah. their place. They, they don't get to walk in with credibility. They have to earn that credibility by being better than everyone around them. Despite being recognized in her field, she wasn't like super known by the public. In 1958, Mary appeared on the game show, What's My Line, where contestants guessed someone's line of work. Get it? What's my line? Contestants had to determine whose job was, quote, designs, rocket, missiles, and satellites, and they could not fucking figure out it was her. She was like, they're like, no. Well, I know it's not the woman. (laughs) Right? She's like the last person picked. Yeah. Her anonymity may partially stem from the fact that most of her work is still considered classified. Because, like, obviously where she was working was secret. Uh, The applications she was working on are classified. So a lot of that stuff, even today, we don't know what she was doing. Mary Golda Ross retired in 1973, but that didn't mean she stopped working. She spent her retirement encouraging women and indigenous youth to pursue engineering. She was also a member of the Society of Women Engineers and supported the American Indians in Science and Engineering Society and Council of Energy Resource Tribes. So she's like, I may not be like working, designing rockets and writing NASA's handbooks, but I'm going to encourage the next crop of young people who will be doing that. In 2004, at 96 years old, Mary attended the opening of the National Museum of the American Indian in Washington, D.C. She was wearing her, quote, first traditional Cherokee dress, which I think is so sweet, like, it was her first traditional dress and she wore it to this like momentous opening. And also how is it that in 2004, we finally got a national museum about the indigenous peoples. Yeah. Although we, we, sad, we don't but... have the, we don't have the national women's museum yet. They're still working, yeah, they're still on, working on building it. it. Everybody go donate. Yeah. Everyone do your Christmas shopping on that website. Like they me. do have some real cute stuff. Like oh. you bought me that shirt that says, um, unboxed, unboxed. And, uh, yeah. 
and I wear it all the time. Yeah, no, they have amazing stuff on that website. I just and think it's because I covered that woman. Yeah, and so I was like, well, that's why I bought it I for you. You shirt. covered Mary Chisholm, but all of the proceeds from the merch go to making building this museum. Mary died on April 29th, two thousand eight, at ninety nine years old. And was buried in Ross Cemetery in Park Hill, Oklahoma. And I can only assume that's like her family ancestral burial ground. Probably. Because it's Ross Cemetery. Upon her death, she left the National Museum of the American Indian a $400,000 endowment. Oh, shit. She put her money where her mouth was. Oh, excuse me. (laughs) That was... At least I didn't burp when I said she died. (laughs) At least we'd move past that part. Yeah, right. So uh, her legacy is basically a bitch and bullet list. Mary is considered one of space travel's hidden figures, along with the likes of Katherine Johnson, who we covered all the way back in episode four. She was honored during her life and posthumously in a number of ways. So here is her bitch and bullet list. She was inducted into Silicon Valley Engineering Council's Hall of Fame in 1992. She received the San Francisco Examiner's Award for Women, Woman of Distinction in 1961. The Santa Clara Valley section established a scholarship in Mary's name in 1992. She was featured in the Google Doodle on August 9, 2018, which would have been the anniversary of her... Oh, that w- that would have been her birthday. Yeah, why did I think it was uh, the day she died? Because they were both in August. That's why. Valid. I don't know what I'm talking about. There's an art installation that people. <laughs> there's an art installation that features her face at Buffalo State College called Mary G. Ross, Scientist, Engineer, Cherokee American by artist Lawrence Kinney. It's really cool looking. I'm I'm a fan. And this is my favorite. She was pictured on the reverse of the 2019 Sacagawea dollar. Really? So I did not know this. I remember when the Sacagawea dollar came out. And that was really cool. But they come out with different editions. Oh, wait, what? Yeah. There are a bunch of different editions and the backside of everyone honors. Is it a different person? It's it's either a different person or a different element of the heritage or the history of indigenous people. I had no freaking idea. And she is on the back of the 2019 one. Yeah. So I was looking them all up and I'm like, this is so fucking cool. Why didn't I know about this? Right? Like, you know, you know what it is? It's because I don't get those late night infomercials for, for coin collectors because I don't have cable anymore. Exactly. <laughs> Where they're like, this coin will increase in value for fucking ever. Remember when they came out with the state quarters and everyone was collecting them like they were going to be worth a million dollars? I still have a bunch of them. I think I used all mine in a vending machine I just, when I was desperate. I just think they're cool looking. <laughs> they are. They are really cool. It's funny. I remember uh, Illinois having a Lincoln motif. I don't remember what Minnesota's was because I was gr- I grew a up. Lake. I grew up in Illinois, so I didn't. I'm like, where is Minnesota on a map? Oh my God. <laughs> I didn't know. I didn't know there was something between Wisconsin and the Dakotas. <laughs> Leave. I know now. <laughs> don't get mad at twelve year old me. Blame my education. But yeah, that is the story of Mary Golda Ross, a real golden girl. Not only because she lived to be really old, but she was literally called Gold Ross. Yeah. So it's basically what we have on our license plate where it's like the lake with like the tree shoreline and a boat and a loon. Oh, okay. It's like, oh, yeah. It's like literally what we have on our license plate. And then it has our state and it says land of 10,000 lakes. Nice. Nice. We were 2005. I love loons. I do too. I, I think that okay. is the one probably the number one thing I miss about living on a lake is the loon calls. Mm. When I was a little kid growing up in Illinois, my dad went on a business trip. It may have been to Minnesota. I can't remember, but he, I was a little kid. So he brought me back a little stuffed loon. It was probably Minnesota. I loved that thing. And now I'm realizing that loon foretold my future. <laughs> Not only am I a loon, but I live where the loons live. <laughs> <laughs> I live where the loons croon on the lake. True story. Yep. So, Kelly, who are you whining about today? I'm going to take a nap. Oh, no, don't. It's a really big yawn. Um, I am whining about Ava Curie. 
So yeah, you know Marie Curie? Do you know anything about her children? Is I was going to say, is this her daughter? One of them. I've wanted to cover her because she showed up on one of those lists online where I was oh, like, really? oh wait, you mean her daughter was also a big fucking deal? Why don't we know both about of, her? Both of them were. Yeah, but like I... I'm like, I didn't even know she had children. Like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so that was, that's my opening line. So you know about Marie Curie. Do you know of her children? No. A- question asked and answered. I do not. <laughs> no. So Ava was born, uh, and it's spelled like Eve, like an American would pronounce Eve. So it's E-V-E, mm-hmm. but it's pronounced Ava because it's French. Yeah. Yay, French. Or ger- I thought it was German. Her hu- Marie Curie's husband was French. Oh, okay. His name's Pierre. Okay. We don't know anything about him either, even though she, he like kind of jointly. Well, cause she, she, she was born in Poland, but she's she's a French citizen. Polish. She's Polish who moved to France. And has French, had French citizenship. Yep. Okay. So Ava Denise Curie was born in Paris, France on December 6th, 1904. So we're going back a ways. She was born uh, just four years before Mary. Yeah. She was the younger daughter of the of scientist Marie and Pierre, who also had another daughter um, who was born in 1897 named Irene. Okay. Although I'm sure that's not how that's pronounced either because there's another accent mark. Accent mark. Yeah. And I didn't look up how to spell it because this story isn't about her. We'll figure it out if we, if when we cover her in the future. So unfortunately, Ava didn't really get to know her father very well because he died two years after she was she was born in an accident. Oh, he was run over by a horse cart. Oh, yep. Is it weird that uh, it sounds like it'd be worse to get hit by a horse cart than a car? Oh, yeah, because I'm imagining you're basically being trampled. Like, because I feel like you're not like by a car. I feel like a lot of times, depending on the speed of the car, you're gonna die on impact. Yeah. Like, I feel like for a horse cart, you're just gonna get like severely mangled and then like lie there dying slowly. Oh, uh, that sounds so awful. That, this is why we need to put horns on horses, yeah, right? That's that's why I'm gonna <laughs> run for uh, on my platform for the next election. Horns on horses. People are going to be like, why? Make it happen now. You're right. <laughs> Doing it for Pierre. <laughs> so after this accident, uh, Marie went and accepted her husband's teaching position at La Sorbonne um, in Paris. Um, and so she was away from the house for a while. Um, however, Dr. Eugene Curry, who was Pierre's dad, so Marie's father-in-law, um, had, had moved in before Pierre had died after Pierre's mom had died and he took, he had to, he had taken care of the children while Pierre was at, was at work. And now why Marie was at work. Okay. Um, that's a nice grandfather, right? God bless grandparents that take responsibility of their grandchildren. You are fucking heroes. Right. Um, he wasn't around super long. He died in 1910. I mean, he was older and yeah. you know, this is the early 20th century. So, um, but that forced Marie to um, bring up her daughters on her own with the help of governesses because mm-hmm. Marie liked to work. Like, if you know anything about Marie Curie, it's how dedicated she was to her work. Yeah. But that was also pretty standard. If you could afford it, you had governesses yep. helping you run the house and raise your children. Uh, Ava would actually even go on to confess that as a child, she did suffer from a lack of attention from her mother. And it was only in her later years, teens and older, that she really developed like an emotional attachment for her, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is a little sad, but it happens. It is sad. Um, So while Marie might not have been around a lot, um, she did take great care of her children in that she got them like the best education that she could. She would let them basically develop any interests either of them had. Um, and Irene would go on to follow her mother's footsteps and become a scientist. Um, but Ava showed more of an artistic and literary interest. Um, in fact, being particularly talented in music from a young age. Uh, the girls would often go on long walks and ride bikes in the countryside. They would go swimming in the summer and Marie even installed gymnastics equipment in the garden of their home for them to, like, play with. That is amazing. Right? They were also taught the normal, like, womanly arts of sewing, gardening, and cooking as well. Mm-hmm. And although the girls were French nationals and their first language was French, they were familiar familiar with their mother's po- Polish origin and also spoke Polish. Good for them. In 1911, in fact, their mother took them to visit Poland, the southern part, which was then under Austrian rule. Um, 
And during their visit, like, you know, they got introduced to a lot of the stuff and then also went around riding horses and hiking mountains because that's what they like. Like they were very outdoorsy. It, it sounds like they were very uh, active. Yes. Also, you mentioned that Poland was, that part of Poland was, was controlled by Austria. Rule. So my, I, I'm 50% Polish because my mother's side of the family is 100% Polish. And my mom's tried to do some genealogy research. And it gets really tricky once we get split. to Poland because it was under Russian control, Austrian. Like, it was just being, like... Under Nazi control. It was pa- under a lot it, of different It was being people. passed around, but well, especially around that time. And it split. Like, the northern part was owned by a certain country. Yeah. And the southern part. And then, like, it kept changing. And Yeah, so it, it gets really muddy. Yeah. So in 1921, Ava set off on her first journey across the Atlantic Ocean with her mother and her sister. They were on board the RMS Olympic to New York City. At the time, her mom, Marie, was a two-time Nobel Prize laureate. She discovered radium and polonium, for those who don't know. Check out our episode on the radium girls. Right. And obviously, being a two-time Nobel laureate, she was, you know... She was welcomed with all the pomp, pomp and circumstance, like high society, very much like everyone wanted to meet she her. She was a big fucking deal. Exactly. And, <laughs> and her daughters were also very popular in American high society. I mean, because if you've ever seen a picture of Marie Curie, she's she's pretty. She's gorgeous. And her, da- her daughters are very much the same. Um, They were known, her daughters were known to be radiant at parties and very joyous. Ava in particular was dubbed by the press as the girl with radium eyes. I, okay, when you said radiant, for half a second, I thought you said radium. This time I did say radium. And now, and then when you said that, I was like, oh my God. So, you know, she's, she's that girl that's just glowing yeah. from just the attention. So but she, not she, you know, from poisonous radiation, exactly. hopefully. No. During the trip, uh, Ava and Irene would also act as their mother's bodyguards because Marie tended to be focused on her research and preferred a very simple life and didn't really feel comfortable Um kind of facing all this praise and adoration she would get. So, you know, like, you know how when you see, like, the bodyguards, like, shielding, like, a celebrity when they go into a building? That's kind of yeah. what her daughters would do for her. She she wasn't ready to be a celebrity. She didn't want She's yeah. like, I just want to be a scientist. I just want to science it up. So while in the United States, Marie, Irene, and Ava would go on to meet President Warren G. Harding in Washington, D.C. They would visit Niagara Falls and would go even go see the Grand Canyon. That's awesome. Um, returning to Paris in the summer of 1921. So they spent about like three months in the United States, which is kind of cool. Yeah, they, they saw a lot in three months. Yeah, they did. They did they a lot. They traveled a lot. <laughs> like. uh, Ava would go on to graduate from the College, Ch- Ch- oh College Savine. It's probably not even close. There's a lot of accent marks in that word, um, which is a non-denominational private high school in Paris. She would go on to obtain her baccalaureate in 1925. Meanwhile, she would also work on her piano skills and hold her first concert that same year that she got her baccalaureate in 1925. She would go on to perform on the stage many times, giving concerts in Paris as well as in the provinces around France and in Belgium. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, eventually Irene married, but like I said, the story isn't about her. So Irene married and, um, kept doing the damn thing. Yeah. Did science. And, <laughs> she, but, she was sciencing so it she, up. So she got married and left basically. So Ava, you know, stayed with her mother in Paris, um, took care of her, accompanied her on trips throughout France, Italy, Belgium, Switzerland. So she's going all over the place with her mom. Um, and even in 1932, uh, Marie was invited to accompany the president of Czechoslovakia, Thomas Mar- Marziak uh, on his trip to Spain. And so obviously Ava went with like, and I'm like, how cool is that? Good God. So yeah, she, she got to travel with the president of Czechoslovakia. And although she loved her mother, Ava had a very different personality from her and from her sister. Cause they were both very um, like science minded and Ava was not, she was not interested in science at all. In fact, she much preferred the humanities, and unlike her mother, she really liked the high life and the refined living. Mm-hmm. So, whereas, like you'll see whenever you see Marie Curie, she's in a very simple, like black dress, basically. She, she no makeup, very hair up, just utilitarian, very, exactly. Yeah, like, for because function. it didn't matter. Yeah, where uh, Ava, on the other hand, always cared about like looking good. You know, high fashion. She would wear high heels and makeup, and she just absolutely loved being the center of attention at parties. She she was more of an Elle Woods. Yeah, she's like the opposite yeah. of her mom almost. And apparently, Irene was more like her mother as well. Which I think is interesting that 
Ava was the one that spent more time traveling with her mother, being almost the the opposite yeah, of her. Yeah, it is. Um, however, as you know, Marie got older and she got ill. Both Ava and Irene would nurse their mother with devotion up until her death. Um, when Marie died on July fourth, nineteen thirty four, of a, a, pla- a plastic anemia, which was probably caused due to her exposure, to, her long term exposure to radium. Yeah, sad day. Um. So after her mother died, Ava decided to express her love by writing a biography. And to this end, she basically like completely withdrew from this high life in like the public eye, which is kind of interesting because that's what she really liked. Mm -hmm. But she withdrew and she basically like bought herself a small flat. Like, I think it was like, I don't recognize the name of it. It was like in Yvelines. And I think that's still in France, but I think it's like in like the countryside of France, but I don't know. But basically, so she went out there, she bought a small flat and basically just like gathered all her mom's documents and letters and like everything she could find and started writing this biography. As she, as she worked on it, she actually even went to Poland for a few months to gather information on her mother's childhood and youth. That is so cool. Right, like, so she's like, no, I'm not going to leave any stone unturned, like, you know, and I, I think it's great. And she, so she finished it, and it became known as the biography Madame Curie. It was simultaneously published in France, Britain, Italy, Spain, the United States, and many other countries in 1937. Good God. Right? It was an instant success and very, very popular, because obviously, like, a lot of people knew Marie Curie. Mm-hmm. Well, and then for a biography to come out from her own daughter... You, I I was just about to say it has more credibility, but then I'm like, no, that doesn't mean anything because then a family member might try to skew things. But it sounds like Ava did a ton of legwork and research. So that's really cool. And what an interesting way for Ava to get to know her mother better, because even though they did spend a lot of time together when she was older, but she wasn't, she didn't feel connected to her mother until she was like a teenager. Exactly. So what an interesting way to get to know her, especially, you know, after her death. Right. Um, so it was a bestseller uh, in the United States in particular, and it won the third annual National Book Award for nonfiction in America. There was also a film adaption in 1943 um, with Greer Garson playing um, Marie. Mm. She Greer was like a huge actress at okay. the time. Ava became more and more engaged in literary and journalistic work after this. Um, and apart from her mother's biography, she would write musical reviews for, for the Can- Candide Weekly and articles on theater music and other film work in Paris. Um, but we all know what's coming during her lifetime. No. Can we, can, we, can we do what we did in the last episode and just have just a montage, like a bad bitch montage? Yeah, right? <laughs> um, so second, World War II breaks out. Yay. <laughs> So 1939. Get out of our stories, damn it! <laughs> right. So 1939, the novelist and playwright Jean Gerdau becomes the French Information Commissioner. So that's kind of like the person who's like, you know, not like they they're keeping an eye on the newspapers and stuff. And basically, like today, it would be like the digital stuff. But like back then, it's kind of like just making sure. Like information security, basically, and newspapers and stuff like that. Oh, okay. So making sure that what's published in newspapers isn't going to hurt the war exactly. effort. Oh, okay. Okay. So um, once he became commissioner, within the same year, he appointed Ava as head of the feminine division in his office. Because apparently they had a feminine <laughs> Here's yeah. what the ladies are wearing on the front lines. Exactly. So she did that until Germany invaded France. In 1940, and she left Paris when they did that. Um, and then after the surrender of France, she fled with other refugees um, on an overcrowded ship to England, which got bombed by German aircraft. Oh, God. But, I mean, they made it. Yeah. But, how scary like, would how that be, yeah. Like, I'm I'm a pretty, I'm a, I'm a good swimmer. I, I have a lot of confidence in yeah, water, it, even open water. But the idea a lot of, of open being, water and a lot of people. The idea of being on a sinking ship scares the absolute hell out of me well because you even saw it in titanic sometimes people freak out and they'll like hold other people underwater and like yeah actually mm -mm, that's mm -mm, why mm -mm. uh lifeguards they have those uh long buoys at the end of a rope and you're supposed to throw that to the drowning person you're not actually supposed to make physical contact with someone who's drowning because they panic and then they pull you under yep 
So, but yeah, just, yeah. And then the idea of like being stranded out at sea is also really horrifying and there's yeah, I mean, no at least, landmarks. At least, like, with the, like, I mean, the English Channel is hard to swim across. Like, obviously it's like a thing to do it, but like, at least like, I mean, I guess you're you not, know, in, like, the you're not in the middle of the goddamn Atlantic, but still I, that's, yeah. that's so awful. And how, how terrifying. Oh Yeah. I can't even imagine. Um, so once in England, she joined the Free French Forces under General Charles de Gaulle and started her active fight against Nazism, which as a result, um, when what was known as the Vichy government, which was basically the Nazi-controlled French government yeah. of the time, um, would actually deprive her of her French nationality and confiscate her property when they when they found out that you know she was working for the free french forces pricks i know also i call my dog charlie charles de gaulle sometimes so whenever we we mention him all i can think of is my dog in like a little french military uniform and he's so cute <laughs> so ava would spend most of her war years in britain you know that's probably where it was safest yeah um where she would meet like people like winston churchill and other you know, huge Big shot people. <laughs> she would also spend a chunk of the time in the United States where she would give lectures and write articles in American newspapers. Um, she would meet Eleanor Roosevelt at the White House. <gasps> That's so cool. I love all of the amazing women that Eleanor Roosevelt was able to oh, have she contact touched so with. many lives. Like, my God. Um, and she was inspired by her meeting with Eleanor Roosevelt and would give a series of lectures on French women and French women in the war, which is kind of cool. So she gave, she would go and she gave a bunch of those talks and then she also wrote um, an article about it under the same name, French Women and the War. <laughs> well, you know, we talked about, uh, was it Emilien Moreau from uh, from Kathy's books, The w- Women of War? But basically, women who served France during World War One and World War Two have largely been ignored oh, yeah. because they didn't seek out recognition. They thought like, well, this is just part of my duty. Right, like I'm just helping my country. So their contributions oftentimes have been kind of... Shoved to the side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. because they're like, uh, why should I? Like I was just doing what was expected of me, like what anyone would do. Right, exactly. So that's really cool that even at that time, she's bringing their stories to light. Um, she would have had the best podcast. Right. <laughs> so from November 1941 to April 1942, Ava actually went and traveled as a war correspondent, which oh I think God. is amazing. She traveled to Africa, the Soviet Union, and in Asia, where she witnessed the British offensive in Egypt and Libya, and then the Soviet counteroffensive in Moscow. Jeez. Which is, that would be insane. Well, and that she's coming from kind of this gilded world where she was very uh, prim, proper, and into her appearance and the finer things. And now she's traveling around, literally going to battles to write about them. Right. So during this journey, she would meet the Shah of Iran, Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, the leader of Free China, Xiang Kai-shek, who was fighting the Japanese at the time, Mm -hmm. and Mahatma Gandhi. Oh, damn. So she's meeting like... All of these different leaders. Is there anyone she didn't meet? <laughs> right. Uh, several times she would actually meet what what she called her half compatriots, which were the Polish soldiers, because you know she's Aww. half Polish. So she and um, because the the Polish soldiers were fighting on the side of the British, or there were some fighting in like a small organized Polish army within the Soviet Union as well. And I think we uh, we touched on them a bit when yeah. I covered like the Warsaw Ghetto, how they had so. their own separate resistance movement. Yep. And so, like, she she had to talk to a lot of those people, which is amazing. And Ava's reports from this journey were published um, in America and in the nineteen and in 1943. They would w- later be gathered in a book of its own called Journey Among Warriors. It was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize. Uh, unfortunately, it lost to a guy named Ernie Pyle. I didn't look at what he wrote. It's not his story. Nope. But er- she, Ernie won. He had his moment. <laughs> right. Uh, a lot of people really liked the book and it's really good. And I actually kind of want to read it because I'm just very curious. Um, however, a Russian reviewer would go on to critique it. Um, and while he complimented her enthusiasm and th- sympathetic style of people she wrote about, he kind of criticized the people she interviewed in the Soviet Union, um, saying that he didn't believe they um she characterized them believably 
like believably as Russians or something. I didn't really understand his critique. You didn't make the Russians Russian enough. Well, and the people in particular she wrote about in the book, at least, were conversations with a Greek Orthodox bishop, a ballerina, a Red Army general, factory workers, local communist leaders, and scientists. Those are like the Russians she interviewed. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the guy was basically like, well, you were really excited and that distorted your judgment and vision. I'm like, I wonder if some of these people just talked bad about Russia. So the guy was like... Your writing's bad. I, I, yeah, I'm having a hard time understanding the criticism because was it like, oh, the people you didn't talk to were Russian enough or they didn't accurately represent Russia? But then he's saying like, he's saying like the way she wrote about them was uh, like distorted and her vision of it. And it's like, yes, that is the point. Well, I mean, it's her interpretation because she's the one writing it. But I, part of me wonders if, you know, she talked to people and they were like, I don't understand what Russia's doing, you know? And then, of course, they'd probably get criticized. Yeah. I, like, I haven't read the book, but I could totally see that. Mm-hmm. Um, so then she would go on to return to Europe after, obviously. And she would then, after writing, would serve as a volunteer in the Women's Medical Corps um, as part of the Free French during the Italian campaign. She would get promoted to the rank of lieutenant in the French 1st Armored Division, and in August 1944, she took part in landing with the troops in province in southern France. Holy shit. Yeah. Uh, she was decorated with the Croix de Guerre, which is um, kind of like a the French version of a Medal of Honor. Yeah, yeah. The, the Croix de Guerre. Yeah. And so she got one of those for her service, which is great. So after the liberation of France, Ava um, went back to Paris because, you know, that's her home. Yeah. And first Where the she, Nazis had given away literally all of her stuff. Well, technically it was the French, but it was the French Nazis. Y- yeah, it, it's the Nazis. <laughs> um, so she would go on to work as co-editor of the daily newspaper called the Paris Press from 1944 to 1949, um, but stayed very active in the political sphere. Like she was very much like, we cannot have that happen again. Like, mm-hmm. you know, um, she was responsible for women's affairs in Charles de Gaulle's government. So like, she was like, no, you can't just ignore women, which yeah. is great. And then she went up to that chi in that little military uniform and she looked down at him and she's she like, pooped him on the nose and went, no. Yeah. Uh, excuse me. Is this your first day here? You are not, you're not fucking doing this. <laughs> no. I'm a me. I can see Charlie in I'm a little. Imagine you bo- booping him on the nose. No. <laughs> I, you know what I do when he's getting annoying? I blow in his face oh, because funny. he kind of goes like, whoa, what the fuck was that? And it, like, it's I like, don't it, have to it, touch yeah, him. That's funny. So I'm imagining her going up to Charles de Gaulle who in my mind is a chihuahua and just going, yeah, blowing in his face and him going, okay, women have rights. Fuck. Yeah, right? That's funny. <laughs> also in 1948, along with other prominent European intellectuals, she would appeal to the United Nations um, for recognition of the state of Israel. Oh, okay. Which is cool. I, I wonder if she must've m- maybe met people like while she was out traveling abroad, you know, like, yeah, that, like kind of influence that. Cause mm-hmm. like, I feel like otherwise, like it's just a very interesting movement for her to get involved. Well, in. she seemed to have a really, global view of what was going on like because she first of all before the war she was traveling everywhere and getting this very international view of the world during the war she's traveling everywhere meeting all these different people she has a pretty intimate understanding of the you know what was going on during the war and the struggle so I I can see her because really that was that happened because of World War II that was an issue because of World War II yeah um so after she did that. She then became the special advisor to Hastings Lionel Ismay, who was the first secretary general of NATO. So she was working Ooh. for NATO. Um, in 1954, she married an American politician and diplomat named Henry Richardson Labusi Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know if they moved to America or not. It never said. Um, but she did become an American citizen four years after marrying him. And again, it didn't say if she did dual citizenship or not i'm assuming not the way it just says became an american citizen mm-hmm. i'm assuming she moved to the united states but it doesn't say um i do know that they ended a few years after that they moved to greece temporarily because her husband was serving as the united states ambassador to greece from 1962 to 1965 so obviously yeah when you're an ambassador you have to live in that country yeah it's kind of part of the deal exactly so once he was done he actually like gave up the job because the secretary general of the United Nations 
offered him a position as the executive director of the United Nations Children's Fund or UNICEF. That's awesome. So he was like, yeah, I, I'll be the director of UNICEF. Um, and he held that position for um, 14 years, actively supported by Ava the entire time. She also worked for the organization, and she was called the first lady of UNICEF. That's so cute. I know. Did, did I ever tell you when I went trick-or-treating for UNICEF? Yeah. It was like my first Halloween that I was too old to like trick or treat for candy. But me and my friend were taking her younger siblings around and I wanted, you know, still trick or treat. And I did not get the reaction I thought I would. Like people were not into it. And actually there was this one. Did they think you were just doing it for yourself? But like just maybe. saying you were doing I, it for I, you? I, wow. I had the little box and everything. I don't know. But there was there was one woman. She 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 was very, she was kind of like the almost stereotypical old crotchety bitch lady. And she just like glared at me. She's like, I don't have anything for you. I'm like, Fuck, bitch. Oh, that's right, because they want you to give, like, change or something. Yeah, yeah, and I understand if you don't have change on you. Like, I get it. You don't but have to be she an was, about she it. She was so yeah. mean. I still remember, like, the glare in her eyes. I'm like, fuck me for being a teenager trying to do something good. I guess I'll go right. drink and do drugs instead. Right. <laughs> so together, they would go on to visit over 100 countries, mostly third world, um, as, you know, that were beneficiaries of UNICEF. So mm-hmm. they would go and like see what was going on. And like, I think that's super cool. In 1965, her husband, um, her, her husband and herself, like she went with him um, and he accepted a Nobel peace prize. Technically it was awarded to UNICEF, but because he's like the director, it was kind of awarded to him. Like yeah. it's, it's a weird thing. Um, her husband would die in 1987. Um, and Ava would continue to live in New York. So yeah, they were living in New York. I just like never mentioned that in my notes until after he died. And then I was yeah. like, they traveled a lot. That's probably why I, I was going to say they were kind of living everywhere. While she had no children um, with Henry, Henry had brought a daughter from his first marriage into the relationship. So her name was Anne Peretz and Anne very much viewed Ava as like a mother and all of Anne's children's con- considered her, her grandmother and, great-grandmother and so on like so that's really cute like they obviously had a really good relationship so like they kept in really close contact even after henry died Mm -hmm. um in december 2004 ava celebrated her 100th birthday we're okay i know we're covering the the heavy high hitters over here these like past two episodes have been women that all live to be incredibly old (laughs) on this occasion she was visited in in new york by the secretary general of the united nations coffee Annan. uh she also received congratulatory letters from the president of the united states who was george w bush at the time and france jacques chirac uh in 2005 ava uh was promoted for her work in UNICEF to the rank of Officier de la Légion d'Honneur, which is like, what is it? Officer of the Le- uh, Honor Legion or something. Okay. Um, which is a, obviously a French thing. It's mm-hmm. not the United States thing. And that is the highest decoration you can get in France. Damn. Um, she expressed her thanks by saying the following. I feel honored. I feel proud. I'm a little embarrassed because I don't think I deserve all these wonderful compliments. So I just don't know quite how to behave, but it's really wonderful. It's a really wonderful day for me. And I will remember it for a very long time. She actually would sometimes joke that she had brought shame on her family because quote, there were five Nobel prizes in my family, two for my mother, one for my father, one for my sister and brother-in-law. They had a joint one. Yeah. And one for my husband. Only I was not successful. Oh my God. But she was doing different stuff. Well, that was I mean, also like, amazing. In a way, like her work with UNICEF could like, she could, like, I feel like the one her husband got is almost joint with her. Yeah. Like, yeah, but it's, I mean, and she was joking, but I'm sure like, I'm sure it did feel kind of weird. Can you imagine though? Like, yeah. Having five Nobel prizes yeah. in your family and you're the only one two. that didn't <laughs> Marie Curie got two, Pierre Curie got one. I think technically one that Marie got was also like it was joint with Pierre. And then, yeah, her sister Irene and her brother-in-law got one. And then Mm -hmm. her husband got the one for UNICEF. Um, Ava Curie died in her sleep on the 22nd of October in 2007 in her residence in Manhattan. She was 102 years old. Anne Veneman, who was the executive director of UNICEF at the time, said... 
Mrs. Labusi was a talented, professional woman who used her many skills to promote peace and development. While her husband headed UNICEF, she played a very active role in our organization, traveling with him to advocate for children and to provide support and encouragement to UNICEF staff in remote and difficult locations. Her energy and her commitment to the betterment of the world should serve as an inspiration to us all. So, like, she did a ton, like, because she started out at, like, writing her mom's biography. Mm-hmm. And then she just wrote, like, almost, like, fluff pieces, I feel like, compared to her later work anyways. Yeah. You know, like, she did, like, high society pieces. And then she was a war correspondent. And then she got married and traveled the world, you know, for UNICEF, which is, you know, yeah, peace and advocating for child and the proper support and, like, all these things. That is so wild. It was my husband that sent me this. Like he, it popped up on like Reddit and he was like, oh, look at this. Cause it was, I don't remember why actually. Cause I was like, maybe it was her birthday, but I don't think it was. Hmm. Yeah. December 6th is her birthday. So I don't know why it popped up on Reddit, but I was just like, oh, send me that. And so like, cause he showed me it. And so, yeah, that is Ava Curie who did just as much as her mom did. And her sister and like everyone else in her family. Right? She is a badass in her own right. Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah, because that was my thing. I'm like, I know a lot. I, I, although there were things in this about Marie Curie that I didn't know. Yeah. Um. But yeah, like, so that's cool. But yeah, someday one of us will have to cover Irene or Irene or however you pronounce her name. Let's just go with Irene for right We're now. Go with Irene. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that is so cool. So Emily, what are you thankful? I am thankful that our new kitten Arthur is adjusting so well. Yeah, he's, he seems to be doing great. He thinks he's a dog. Or he I'm, thinks I'm the really dogs glad that, like, because, like, I wasn't really worried about the two small dogs, because, I mean, like, I'm pretty sure he's bigger than them and could probably kick their asses. Uh, he will a, be eventually. I was a little bit worried, because, like, I, I didn't know if Rocky had ever been around cats, so I was like, oh. It's funny, because Rocky, I was never worried about him. He's been around cats. He's excellent with cats. And well, even, he, like, small he animals. He likes small animals, yeah. yeah. Max, I was not worried about because even though he's never been around cats. Didn't he live out on the farm? No. 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 Max lived with Jared's dad and stepmom. Yeah. But he's done well with like babies around. Like he he does well with everyone. He's a very he's a very sociable dog. Charlie's an asshole. Um, it's just part of who he is, and he's actually doing really well. Sometimes he gets kind of shitty, and it's mostly if he's, like, up on the bed and Arthur, like, starts walking up, and, you know, he's slinking around because he's a cat, and Arthur, or Charlie will, like, growl at him and bark, and I'm like, shut the fuck up. Right. And normally it's not a problem unless it's in the middle of the night. Well, yeah, unless it's, like, 3 a.m., and, I just and you're hear, like, oh. Also, Charlie doesn't understand what purring is. So one night he was like under the cover being my little spoon and Arthur was above him outside of the covers also being my little spoon. So I was living my dream life, cuddling all these animals and Arthur was purring. And as he starts purring, Charlie under the covers, I'm like, shut the fuck up, dude. You're like, he's not growling. He's purring. It's and then fine. when Arthur stopped purring, Charlie stopped growling. And then when Arthur would start purring again, I'm like, Charlie, that's not what's happening. Not everyone's as big of an asshole as you. Maybe he just didn't like the vibrations. He's like, stop it. I'm trying to uh, sleep. I don't know. But yeah, he like, he's adjusting so quickly and so well. He's that's an good. absolute doll. He's very social, like with people and the other animals. And it's, it's him, awesome. Did you get him a little cat scratcher so he doesn't ruin your furniture? I got him one that hangs off the door. That works. And he plays with literally everything but that. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. I've like, heard rubbed catnip on the cat scratches. Oh, it's got catnip in it. Oh. And he does not give a shit. I'm so... Now that we've moved out of the guest room, Jared is moving his stuff into that room to be like his office. Yeah, so you guys can have separate offices. Yeah. Uh, soon I'll never have to see him. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Not unless I want to. Well, I'm going to my rooms. But I, there's a like cat tree kind of thing where it really just looks like tall cube shelves. I yeah. might get him that and put it in my office if it fits. Because it's, it's not as overbearing like some of these cat trees where it's like, this is a whole ass piece of furniture. Right. And, and my house like is not big enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this, I, my house is not big enough to handle this much cat tree. But he, he I mean, he uh, he scratches stuff, but he hasn't been really, like, really bad or yeah, anything. That's good. Yeah. So I'm, I'm super thankful that we adopted him, that he's in our family now, that he's adjusting well. And, oh, how's your kitten? I love him. I miss purrs. I miss purring cats so much. I didn't even know. 
You're funny. He does punch me in the face sometimes, though. Hey, like, in the middle happens. of the night, he'll <laughs> bat at my face and my nose and my eyes. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? It's the nose ring. He sees the shininess and he's like, eh. Oh, it's it's because, like, he's like, oh, food time now? I'm like, it is four in the goddamn morning. No. Like, wait a few hours. <laughs> Honestly, I can't even be mad because I know, like, I grew up with cats. I know what they do. I know this is part of the deal. So I'm like, I can't even be mad at you because this was a choice I made. <laughs> it was. Kelly, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful that we're we're getting a time to get like ahead. And yeah, I don't know. I'm thankful for some of the ideas we have for stuff coming up and just, yeah. Things are going well with the podcast. Yay. Thankful for pod stuff. Pod stuff. I'm so thankful for like our patrons and our listeners too, because they've really been showing up for us. I and know. I'm just I love you guys. endlessly thankful. It's amazing. Um, well, yeah, we do have some, some new stuff, like just random stuff that's going to be coming up for our patrons. Like I got a wine advent calendar, so it'll be like a daily little video update. video from one of us, you know, being like, this is the wine today. Yeah. So, um, look forward to that, but that'll be a patron only thing. Like maybe once in a while we'll post it to other social meds, but otherwise it'll just be a patron thing. And then we got a few other things. Yeah. Hey, surprises. Stay tuned. That's not done. It's coming. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Whining About Herstory. Like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAHpod. Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is Whining About Herstory. And our email is whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. As we mentioned, we have a Patreon. Where if you go to patreon.com slash whiningaboutherstory. We also have a spread shirt where you can get a bunch of merch it's on our website or it's spreadshirt.com forward slash whining about her street and i think there's a hyphen between each of the words there is they wouldn't let me do spaces yeah so literally go to whining and then click on the merch yeah you don't even have to go to another tab. website then and then you're there just just do it also our link trees on everything if, if you can't find it you're not trying <laughs> then you can just email us and then yeah. we'll be like you didn't try but here's the link yeah we'll, we'll still send you the link because we're not that much of dicks no we're also not, we're not charlie in a little french <laughs> you know those paintings you can give your dog in a fancy i, I want to get one of charlie in a little french military uniform oh my god also please rate us five stars wherever you listen it really helps us out it costs you nothing and just put some positivity yeah, in the world the because season everyone needs of it giving it's the season of giving us five fucking stars, stars. Yeah. <laughs> all regular right. stars i'll take regular stars too no they're all fucking stars <laughs> only when there's five of them bitch you're a fucking star i'm a fucking star reviews are fucking stars as always, thank you so much for listening to Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.